1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dan Levesey, who also hosts this program. His book, Children of Uncertain Fortune, Mixed-Race Jamaicans in Britain and the Atlantic Family, 1733 to 1833, was published just this year with the University of North Carolina Press. It's a sweeping study of a number of mixed-race individuals and the ways they and their families negotiated and shaped ideas about race and about status. It's full of remarkable stories. And it's an important intervention in the now extensive Atlantic world literature that spans the rise and fall of the slave trade, as well as the American and Haitian revolutions. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Dan. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for inviting me. Welcome to our podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist saying that. <laughs> um, so you've written this really amazing book, and which I really enjoyed reading. And I want to start with the cover, which unfortunately our listeners can't see, but hopefully they'll look at a picture of it or something. You have these two gorgeous uh, paintings on it. Um, and when you first look at them, they look very Jane Austen-y. And then you realize that they're not quite Jay, Jane Austen-y. Um, <laughs> So I, I was wondering if you can just talk a little bit about the paintings. Who are the people in them? What do you know about the artists?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, I kind of learned this is my first book and I kind of learned that you have these ideas in your about what a cover is supposed to look like and then um, people who actually know what they're doing have much better ideas about how to do it. And so uh, originally I, I just wanted the bottom image to be the full cover um, because it's, it's one of the main families that I'm talking about in this book um, and 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 they are a mixed race family that come from Jamaica. Um, They leave Jamaica uh, during a period in which there's this series of enslaved uprisings called Tacky's Revolt in 1761. And they they go to England with their father, and they sort of spend the rest of their childhood and young adulthood in England. And then several of them actually go on to India um, and make a sort of additional fortune there before settling back permanently in Britain. And so they're, they're really kind of, I think, a, a great example of what my book is talking about, which is this really kind of cosmopolitan experience of people who are born in Jamaica. They're the... Um, the uh, descendants of enslaved people and also white individuals um, and the ways in which they have this very Atlantic life. And so I wanted to highlight them and, and as sort of the the core example. And if you look at that image, they're they're very light skinned. If you were to look at it, you wouldn't imagine that they had any kind of background in Jamaica. And I think that's really an intentional choice on their part. It's, it's hard to know exactly what they looked like. They don't comment on how darkly complexed they were. Um, but uh, much of their life in adulthood was trying to um kind of paper over this west indian past and to try to distance themselves from this background and enslavement um, And the publishers sort of saw that and said, well, that's a really interesting idea. I think people might mistake it for them just being white people on the cover. And they said, well, you know, can we put another example just to kind of reinforce, uh, you know, that this is a kind of mixed race migration? So the top image is a much more famous one um, of Dido Elizabeth Bell, who there was a movie uh, made about her a few years ago in 2013 called uh, Bell. And uh, she's quite famous because she was the. The grand niece of Lord Mansfield, who was England's highest judge uh, in the mid to late 18th century, and he was very important in making a couple of key determinations on the issue of slavery in English law. Um, And so she's this kind of really interesting example of someone who was this kind of migrant from the Caribbean. It's mixed race migrant. Um, She had these very elite family networks back in Britain. Um, And she also was uh, kind of within a family that made very important decisions on the issue of slavery. Um, And so these two images, I think, uh, uh, show both the cosmopolitanism of the, of the individuals that I'm talking about, um, uh, but also sort of the wide variety of, of experiences and also just the wide variety of, of looks and backgrounds that these people had.
1: Yeah. And I wanted to start with the cover because it really emphasizes people and individuals, as well as the family and domestic settings, which you argue are key to your book. And so looking at the footnotes, it's clear that family papers were really important as your sources. So I wonder if you could talk to Just a little bit about how you came across those sources. You know, how did you get into those family papers? Um, tell us that story.
0: Yeah, so it really was a project that came to me. I I um uh it really started at the very beginning of my graduate career. So I I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan, and uh there's a a very terrific uh early American manuscripts library there called the Clements Library, and uh, the uh, the year that I got there, they had just the Clements Library had just purchased the papers of a Jamaican slave trader named John Taylor. And um, it was a pretty big collection. It is a big collection. It's about, I think, 10 boxes or so of correspondence. There's a number of commonplace books. There's a bunch of other materials. And they needed a, a kind of lowly grad student to go and catalog it and organize it. And uh, I was a lowly grad student and I had just come and I I, you know, want to do something vaguely about slavery. I wasn't exactly sure what it was I wanted to study, but I was really interested in the issue of slavery. And so um, I kind of spent a summer just going through these papers and, Uh, For anyone that's interested in studying uh, slave trading in Jamaica at the end of the 18th century, it's really a fantastic collection, and you should go and visit Ann Arbor to see those papers. Um, And I I was certainly intrigued by that aspect, but the thing that couldn't get out of my mind as I was going through these letters is that there were these kind of scattered letters uh, between the family um, of, of John Taylor, uh, talking about these four mixed race children that he had. And uh, he had these four children uh, with an enslaved woman named Polly, who was uh, the slave of his cousin. And so, uh, you know, that's certainly not unusual that a white slave trader would have children with an enslaved woman. Um and he frees them, which that's also not a terribly interesting or, or or unique story. Um, but what really kind of shocked me was that he uh, sent each of them off to Britain first to live with his family members in Scotland and then to go on to uh, boarding school in England. And then one of them goes off and joins the east india company army and and sails off to to the East Indies. And I just thought this was such a a strange story. And I just had never heard of something like that. And so I decided that, you know, in graduate school, I had to do a couple of seminar papers. So I did one seminar paper on this family and um, I got a a small grant to go to Britain for a couple of months to try to see if I could find other families that were like this. And I found a couple of small, Uh, you you know, letters here and there and a few stray references, but I didn't really find a lot. And so I kind of figured like, well, this is a really interesting story, but it probably is not much bigger than this family. And he just kind of a strange example of, of someone who was taking care of these children. And so I kind of let it alone and turned in my paper and, and finished the rest of my kind of coursework grad school. And then it was time to do a dissertation. And so I went back to Britain for about six months and I was like, well, that, that, mixed race migrant project sure was interesting, but I don't think I can really do anything with it. And so I decided I was going to do a project on anti-slavery activism and sort of the ways that they engage with this use of race. And so um, this was at a time before there had been a lot of digitization of of the British Library. And so I had to kind of go through and read all those pamphlets. And, you know, I'm reading them and, and you know, I wasn't to be honest, wasn't having a great time. I was getting kind of bored reading them. I was noticing that, you know, I was showing up to the archive later and later every day and going a little earlier every day and taking long lunch breaks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And London is at the nice. time, you know, that I was, <laughs> was spending so much money in Britain, the, the exchange rate was so terrible for Americans. And I thought, okay, I really have to find a better diversion. I, I may not be into this project, but if I'm going to divert myself, I need to do more constructive things. And so, I started to uh, just kind of distract myself by looking at at Jamaican materials. And I found this collection by uh, a Jamaican librarian who was working in the 1960s and 70s named uh, Kenneth Morgan. And um, he had written this sort of five volume set of all these different archives that related to Jamaican materials. And I found a few more references to families with mixed race children, um, some of which were in private hands. And so I started to search and I found uh, a few more private collections through the the National Register of Archives in Scotland and England. So I started contacting those families and let me come and look at some of their their, uh, uh, resources. Uh, and then I I thought, well, maybe this might be a project I could do, but I was still a little bit on the fence about it. And then the thing that kind of pushed me over to think, okay, I'm definitely going to stop doing this abolitionism thing. I'm going to start doing this mixed race migrant thing was, um, I, decided to sort of start pulling up some random Jamaican material. And uh, uh, I pulled up the the minutes of the Jamaican assembly, which is the legislature in Jamaica. And I start flipping through a few pages. And then I come across this petition from uh, a mixed race woman who uh, is asking for added rights um, for herself and her family, um, because she says, well, we're very elite and we've, you know, we, we were Christian and we're very loyal to colony and we shouldn't have to suffer under the rights that mixed race people suffer under in Jamaica, because in Jamaica, There were a number of civil rights incursions against mixed race people. And she has this kind of biography of why she deserves these sexual rights. And one of the things that she mentions is that her children have all been educated in England and they've come back. I go, oh my gosh, that's really interesting. So I kind of write down the notes about that. And I turn the page, and I see another petition, uh, almost with the exact same kind of wording, and also noting that this person, this is a, it was a guy this time, who says, "Well, I went off and I I went to to England and I developed a a, a steam powered mill, and I want to bring it back to Jamaica." And I thought this is incredible. And I keep flipping, and I found more and more of these petitions, and I realized that there was sort of this correspondence. Uh, Archive of families that were talking about these mixed race individuals, but there was also this kind of institutional archive um, of these petitions, which we can talk about more if you want to later on, um, which showed kind of the the regularity of this migration and that there were um, a, a lot of people that were undertaking this movement from Jamaica to Britain and in many cases back to Jamaica again. And so I kept going through those Jamaica assembly records and I found about 71 individuals who noted having gone to, to England. So I thought, okay, I think this is actually a project that I can do and I can sort of keep pushing. And so uh, that sort of started the process of, of going through lots of different family papers and, and trying to turn over various archival documents to see what I could find.
1: Um, Yeah, that is a good story. So, okay, so now you have these two pretty rich sets of uh, sources and documents, including the institutional history. How did you, what are the things that you decided to frame it uh, around? How did you choose the kind of literatures that you were going to engage?
0: Well, that was a good question. I I think uh, initially when I was looking at this, I was just kind of looking at it as uh, a topic about how race develops and how people in families with mixed race can, how they talk about race. Um, there's a really great literature um, about the, the kind of scientific conceptions and the sort of, you know, literary conceptions of race in the 18th century, which I think is is fantastic. But I kind of noticed that a lot of those scientific theories didn't really come up in any of the correspondence that I was looking at. But instead, you know, when there are these families with mixed race individuals, they tend to be talking about much more kind of simplistic basic, almost just like Family issues, um, and so originally when I was writing about, it, I want to frame it in terms of the political uh, topics surrounding slavery, particularly uh, anti-slavery activism. Um, big moments like the Haitian Revolution, which was really crucial in transforming the way people thought about not just slavery but also people of color. Um, but the more I got into it, the more I realized that the function was a really crucial part of it as well, because um, so much of the concern within these households was, well, how do we incorporate these individuals into our families? And are they full members of our family? Or, you know, how much do we take care of them? What is our responsibility to them? So there's quite a bit of discussion within families about how they even think about these members of their household. Um, but it was even bigger than that. As I was kind of going through the the sort of legislative records uh, in Jamaica, I noticed that there were a lot of questions around family at the legislative level. And um, Jamaicans in the 18th century, Jamaican officials, I should say, in the 18th century were incredibly concerned about the security of the island, which was completely understandable because um, you know a lot of people who know about 18th century Jamaica know that it was an extraordinarily unbalanced society. There were about 10 to 13 enslaved people People of African descent for every free white person. Um, And so security was always this big problem and this concern that there weren't enough free people to kind of counterbalance the size of this really large oppressed enslaved population. And so I, I really noticed that from the beginning, um, Jamaican officials were were trying to develop ideas about how do we increase the size of our free population, especially our free white population, to serve as a counterweight to this really large enslaved population. And they, you know, they they took it somewhat seriously, not always with as much seriousness as they needed, but they they really thought that Increasing family connections in the Korean would be one way of increasing the white population. And uh, when they realized that it was very hard to entice Europeans to come over, they started to push the idea that maybe the white population on the island could reproduce naturally, which was kind of a hard sell in part because there weren't a lot of white women in Jamaica at the time. And so one of the things that I argue is that by the 1730s, the Jamaican assembly is ready to experiment with some, some new possibilities. And the experiment that they try for a little over a generation um, is to try to create a white population out of a mixed race one. And so they, they basically, they pass a law in 1733 that says, um, if you are more than three generations removed from an African ancestor, you are legally white. You're not partially white. You don't have a kind of you know, nominal white status—you are fully white. Um, they also then create lots and lots of problems for people that don't meet that requirement. Um, but they're trying to experiment with the idea of using family construction to create a new type of society, or at least a kind of a new status of whiteness. So those became the two poles around which I I tried to build my analysis is one, how are there kind of a, how was there sort of a racial discussion around these individuals? Because obviously um, race was a topic people were interested in, although as a lot of scholars have noted in the 18th century, people in the British empire didn't really have a firm sense of what race meant. Um, And then the other pole was this issue of family, because family is always under consideration and negotiation as well. So um, how do you incorporate people who are maybe not non-traditional members of a family. Um, and to what degree does their racial difference make them improper members of a family?
1: That, you know, my next question was actually about your, your, uh, claim that race, uh, is a family issue. And I was wondering what you meant by that, but now um, that that really clarifies it for me. And especially in the way, just as you were talking, thinking about family in so many different, at so many different levels, right? The dimension of sort of the very intimate domestic dimension, but then also the kind of the broad sprawling family as commercial network dimension, and then family as kind of basis of a nation dimension. It's, it's completely fascinating. Um but then also as you were talking, I was I I was thinking about um this process of the intention to make Jamaica sort of populate it with white people, which seems to be in some ways the mirror image of what people like um Sasha Turner are writing about or wrote about in, in terms of um this moment at the end when when the end of slavery is coming near and trying to produce more slaves on the island itself. Yeah. Um, So how, how are those, how are your, how is your work and her work? How are they, there's this point of intersection there, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sasha has a really fantastic examination of the ways in which natural reproduction for enslaved populations is one of the most important political issues in Jamaica in this time period. And and Catherine Paw has a a book um, that that takes a sort of similar examination, although more of Barbados and, and other areas in the Caribbean. Um, and, and yeah, I, I absolutely agree. She's, we are 100% in agreement about all these issues, and there's a, a, a nice overlap there. Um, I'll, I'll sort of summarize, I guess, her ideas and my ideas at the same time, which is that um, when anti-slavery activists really start to become, uh, you know, command more and more public attention, uh, re- this is really in the 1780s in the British Empire, at least, um, they very quickly realize that they're not going to, to convince a lot of moderates to support... Uh, Any kind of bill that abolishes the slave trade, if they if they talk about it just in terms of humanistic terms, so you know, just saying, well, these are Africans, they deserve our sympathy. Certain people are swayed by that argument, but the real movers and shakers of the empire, uh, they want to see that there's some kind of economic dimension to that argument. And so, you, you know, one of the things that people like Thomas Clarkson and William Wilberforce say is that. Well, you know, we have evidence um, and this is totally untrue, by the way, but they say we ha- we have evidence of plantations that they treat their enslaved workers really, really well. And because of that, their enslaved workers um, are much healthier and they're actually having kids and they're reproducing themselves naturally. And so those plantations actually don't need to import any Africans to keep their their labor supply up. And so if we could just impose this in a wide scale and have, uh, you know, planters treat and slave workers better, um, there will be a naturally reproducing slave population. And if we as good Christians can kind of show these Africans how to marry and have proper family uh, uh, households, then they will produce lots and lots of children because in their minds, uh, marriage is the best way to actually increase reproductive capacity. And there's lots of interesting theories about why that is in the 18th century. Um, so this becomes a really, really important political issue is how do you get stronger family networks uh, amongst the enslaved population so that you eliminate the need for the transatlantic African slave trade? Um, and there's a parallel side to that, which is how do you also get the white population? So, that, so that's really kind of Sasha Turner's um, assessment. And I talk about that a little bit myself in my, in my book. But there's not just an interest in increasing the enslaved population through natural reproduction. There's also a desire to increase the white population through natural reproduction, because uh, again, there's this concern that if you have too much of an imbalance between free and slave, you're going to have a slave revolution like we see in Saint-Domingue, which becomes the country of Haiti. Um, And so you need to have a stronger civil society and free society that can kind of keep that society in the Caribbean stable. And so there's a, a fair amount that abolitionists kind of talk about and also just general observers in the empire talk about, which is how do we keep or increase the size of our white population? And so there's this sort of similar interest in looking at the demographics of white society in the Caribbean. So when you have those two pulls on the anti-slavery debate of wanting both greater and slavery production but also greater white reproduction, what happens is that there becomes then a big political problem of having interracial reproduction, because that seems to violate those two key goals of having a stronger white society and a more robust reproductive and slave society. Um, if you have white people having sex with black people, it creates a population that's mixed race and it's a little bit unclear what their status is going to be. It kind of complicates that binary, that racial binary between black and white. Um, if you manumit those children, then it's unclear what their status in that society is going to be. Are they going to join with white society? Um, probably not because there is so much racial uh, animosity within that society. Um Are they going to advocate for their own freedom? Are they going to complicate this, this whole slave system? Um, And then there's also this concern that even if these mixed-race children stay enslaved, they're not going to be as good of workers. There's this racialized belief that only people of pure African descent can work properly in the tropics. And so if you have these individuals who have some European blood, uh, the perception is, well, they're going to be worse workers. And so it actually, that that hurts the slave system as well. So um, what happens is that interracial sex and mixed-race people during this anti-slavery activist period of the late 18th century, um, they really become not just a kind of moral threat because, well, it's it's white men having sex with their slaves and they're not having sex within marriage, but it's also this political threat that it's going to perhaps undermine the security of the colonies and it's going to undermine the reproductive capacities of enslaved people in order to accomplish the end of the slave trade.
1: And yet, uh, in spite of all of that, you make a claim that seems to run a little bit against the grain and to complicate your story even more. Um, And that claim is that, and you write, illegitimate people of color were crucial to social cohesion rather than integral to the dissolution of slave societies. So, So can you walk us through that? argument? Sure. So the
0: the idea that's coming from anti-slavery activists, that there's this problem of interracial households, it really is kind of a a metropolitan perspective that gets imposed uh, on the colonies. And it's a perspective that these families back in Britain are are kind of um, internalizing themselves. But what I argue in the book is that in Jamaica itself, um, these mixed race individuals are actually, they're not really marginalized in the way that metropolitan observers are talking about. And in fact, they have really crucial roles within the the sort of free community. Um, uh, so, you know, one of the things that I argue is that uh, they... They are seen as sort of the seedbed for this future white population, um, especially, you know, with the 1733 law that I mentioned that gets passed. It says anyone that's more than three generations removed from an African ancestor, they are now legally white. Well, so these illegitimate mixed race people, they're kind of seen as the the progenitors to this This new white population, which is not technically divorced entirely from African ancestry, um, but nevertheless, they're white enough that we're going to keep them as the sort of white population to make sure that we have colonial security. Um, So in some ways, it's the, the, the last hope of Jamaican officials to create a reproductive white population where they've struggled for so long to create that, in part because, again, Europeans are not as excited about coming over when they do come over because they don't have differential immunity to diseases like yellow fever and malaria. They die at very, very quick rates. Um, so people that are born on the island who have that differential immunity, um, they, they are a, a much better option for creating a white population. And uh, because there's such a de- gender disparity between uh, uh, white men and white women in Jamaica, uh, these mixed race individuals, even though they're illegitimate, are seen kind of the the next best best hope for getting a white population.
1: Change over time is really important in the book. And I really liked the way that world historical events kind of seeped into and shaped people's ideas about race, but not at all in a reductive fashion. Um, So some of the moments that you... That you look at are include Tacky's Rebellion and the aftermath, of the, the 1760s, and then there seems to be another turn in the 1780s, and then finally uh, the wake of the Haitian Revolution. And they they give the book a kind of structure, but but that doesn't overwhelm it. I, I thought that was really well balanced. Um, so how did you come to select those particular moments? Why were they important?
0: Yeah, well, the thing that's very nice. I, I hope it, it works okay. The the Tacky Revolt is really crucial because it's this major moment in Jamaican history where um, it's this massive enslaved uprising. It's really kind of a series of enslaved uprisings that get lumped together into this singular event. Um, and it's really one of the largest uh, enslaved rebellions before the Haitian Revolution. And it destroys lots and lots of property. A number of people are killed. A number of enslaved individuals are executed in response to it. And it effectively terrorizes free white uh, society in Jamaica. Um It's important because of that issue, and it it begins the process of Jamaicans starting to become even more constrictive of um, enslaved life. Um, It's really particularly important to the issue that I'm talking about around mixed race people, because um, one of the laws that comes out of it as a way of trying to deal potentially with this uprising is that the Jamaican Assembly passes a law which... uh, 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 limits the amount of inheritance that mixed-race people, illegitimate mixed-race people, I should say, um, can inherit at 2,000 pounds of island currency. So 2,000 pounds is, is a fair amount of money. You could One could live pretty comfortably off of that, but it sort of pales in comparison to the fortunes that a lot of mixed-race people were inheriting up to that point. In some cases, they were inheriting 50,000 pounds, 100,000 pounds, so it's a big restriction on on their livelihood, and it's done really as an attempt to try to separate whites and blacks even further and to kind of prevent the growth, especially of a middling population of color who perhaps have some money behind them, but don't have full political enfranchisement, and therefore could potentially be uh, rebellious themselves. There's such a concern about rebellion, not just from enslaved populations, but also free populations of color who might sort of be in that indeterminate status and feel disenfranchised enough that they they want to push back against white society. Um so the assembly passes that uh, initially with a caveat that they will give exemptions to the richest and most elite of the mixed race households. Um, they eventually do away with that provision, but they provide some exemptions along the way outside of that. But it's really kind of a moment in which the experiment that I talked about earlier, of where they're, they're trying to create more flexibility in terms of who's considered white, they start to push back a little bit and they're starting to become more and more nervous about a mixed race population. Um, The 1780s are really important just because abolitionism, as I mentioned before, was such an important uh, um, political issue. It it kind of took these private discussions in households around what it meant to be mixed race or what race even meant or what slavery meant, um, and these sort of governmental debates, it made them suddenly a big political source of conversation where people who had no connection to Jamaica or had no connection to slavery were suddenly reading about issues around race and slavery and even uh, uh, interracial sex and mixed race people. Um, And so that begins the process of of having lots of people engage with this topic of race, to the point that you see a big literature come out of, of novels in the 1790s that are using mixed-race migrants as characters for, for their stories. So you suddenly get this kind of uh, fiction, this uh, interest within uh, 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 authors around this topic. Um, and so that, you know, that I think, was a really crucial dividing line in terms of uh, these sort of small, private, governmental issues becoming public affairs. And then the Haitian revolution is also a really critical one as well. And, and, uh, you know, I hope I'm not getting too detailed or I'm just like jumping into the weeds with all of this, but, um, the Haitian revolution, uh, is important for kind of two reasons. One, uh, it's the only successful slave revolt, uh, in uh, American history. And so it it obviously terrorizes, um, white slave owners about what the, the potential for their enslaved people are. Um, But more specifically, it has a very, very specific importance to mixed-race migrants. So here's where I'm going to kind of get into the weeds a little bit. Um, There's actually a small uprising that occurs about six months before the enslaved uprising in 1791, and it comes from a group of mixed-race individuals in the colony of Saint-Domingue. Saint-Domingue is the French colony that becomes Haiti once uh, it becomes independent. And uh, it's led by this man, Vincent Auger, and Auger... Uh, was a very elite man of color um, in the colony of Saint-Domingue. And he had been uh, educated in in France. Uh, He had spent a lot of his childhood there. He came back to Saint-Domingue. He was a successful coffee planter and goldsmith. Um, And he goes back to France uh, to collect his sisters who were being educated there as well. And he happens to be there when the French Revolution breaks out. And he's quite inspired by the French Revolution, in particular because he thinks, he interprets some of the laws that are being passed uh, as effectively being in France franchisement bills for all people who are free in the French empire. And so he believes that what the French revolution has done is that it's given full political rights to free people of color in the Caribbean. So he goes back to Saint Domingue and he approaches the the colonial leaders and he says, "Look, the French Revolution has enfranchised us, us free men of color. We have the same rights as you." And the the Saint Domingue legislature says, "Absolutely not. That's not what the French Revolution is doing. You are just as as uh, kind of oppressed as you always were, and uh, we're not. You've misinterpreted what the revolution is." So Auger obviously does not take that quite very well. He organizes a number of, of very elite free people of color. Um, they form a militia um, and they they begin to uh, uh, start an uprising against uh, the Saint-Domingue legislature. Uh, that uprising is put down pretty quickly. Um, Auger is executed um, and it seems to kind of calm things down. But a few months later, we have a larger enslaved uprising um, in 1791. Now, the connection between Auger's small rebellion, which was not at all a rebellion to try to free enslaved people. It was just to enfranchise, free people of color Um, there's really it's hard to know if there was any connection between those two events if i think most historians don't think they're connected at all but for people in france and people in england and also for whites in the caribbean they absolutely see these two things as completely linked together Um, they believe that people are not smart enough to hatch their own revolution and it was only after auger's kind of small uprising that they had the courage or the tenacity to to launch their own revolt And so the concern is well, this might happen in the British Empire as well. And because Auger had been educated in France, he was thought to have been radicalized by his European upbringing, and so the concern was that he took these very radical European ideas and brought them back to the Caribbean and tried to unseat the the stability of slavery. And so suddenly, for Jamaicans of color who've had the same who have the same biography as Auger, where they've spent a lot of their childhood in Britain, they've come back to Jamaica. The fear is that now they are potential rebels themselves, and that they are going to launch their own attack against colonial society. And so that becomes another crucial turning point uh, in which maybe in the early 18th century, there was not really this concern about these very, very elite migrants of color. Suddenly by the end of the 18th century and the early 19th century, they Mm -hmm. posed this very strong political threat. Um, And so that's another really crucial turning point in this history.
1: And and the arc of your book really is towards less acceptance of these, of this group of people in a kind of, I don't know, depressing <laughs> sort of, um, rather than this sort of, you know, whiggish sort of more and more acceptance of people who have been around for, for over, you know, a hundred, a hundred years or something, it seems to be turning against them more and more as the, as, as the book comes to a close.
0: Yeah. And part of it's because of the reasons I just outlined where there's greater and greater concerns over slavery. There's more and more polarization on the issue of race. But in the that issue of family, which I mentioned was one of the, the kind of two poles that I organized the book around, um, there's also a kind of consolidation of what it means to be a member of a family, too. And, um, you know, so in the early 18th century uh, in Britain, but also in, in the colonies, one could be a member of a family in all sorts of ways. Servants were considered members of families and um, illegitimate children were not necessarily cast out as as uh, an outside the bounds of a household. Um, But by the middle and late 18th century, you start to see more and more of a kind of uh, constricting of what it means to be a member of a household. And part of that has to do with kind of concerns about demographic decline in England, especially in the 1750s and 60s. There's actually a concern that England is losing population. This is before Thomas Malthus comes in in the late 18th century. He says, no, 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 we have too many people here. Uh, initially, the British are concerned they don't have enough people. And so they become more and more adamant that there needs to be stricter marriage laws and that there needs to be stronger family networks. Um, but then also as kind of merchant capitalism is arising, rising, um, it becomes more and more important that families have strong access to credit, especially these merchant families that I'm talking about who have these mixed race uh, uh, relatives. It becomes more and more important that the family members that you have are ones that can help you expand your credit networks and help you to expand uh, your, your ability to connect to these larger capitalistic forces. For mixed race migrants whose which really only consist of their their white family members and their fathers um, they're kind of seen as financial dead ends they don't really have the same access to credit they don't have the same access to individuals that they can use to expand their their uh, colonial holdings, and so in part because of that, and another a number of other forces, uh, it, it's families are defined much more strictly by the 19th century, and that really hurts these mixed race migrants who before have been kind of incorporated into families because, well, you know, families are these sort of. Broad, amorphous, somewhat encompassing uh, uh, structures. By the early nineteenth centuries, nineteenth uh, century, excuse me, the family definition has really become much more solidified, and it's much harder to kind of be considered a part of those close family networks, especially if you're a person of color.
1: The book is full of really fascinating stories of individuals, and I wonder if you could pick out two or three of your favorites and tell us a little bit about each of them.
0: Sure. So I mentioned a little bit about the Morses who are kind of fascinating family, and I found probably the most about them. Um, and just to kind of repeat, they 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 left Jamaica during Tacky's revolt, and they go to England. Um, and they really kind of are, uh, in some ways, the model family that a lot of other migrants are aspiring to, at least in terms of the their success. So um, there are about five uh, children. Um, uh, one of the sons becomes an officer in the British army. Um, another becomes a barrister. He's he, he at the Inns of court. Um, and one of the daughters marries a very, very prominent lawyer in London. Um, and then the son who becomes a barrister ends up going off to India to try to make his own fortune outside of the law. And two of his sisters follow him to, to India to try to meet a kind of well-to-do man on the make. And they're both successful. They both marry East India company officers. Um, all three of them eventually go back to, to Britain and they seem to be living this very, very elite life. They have these town homes in Hampshire and these very, very fancy homes in London. Um, they have a huge colonial fortune behind them and then uh their father dies and uh very very quickly these relatives kind of come in out of the woodwork to try to get his fortune uh from his kids. So these five mixed race children who stood to inherit about one hundred twenty thousand pounds from their father's Jamaican estate. Um, they have a, an English cousin sue them for this estate, um, and it's really really fascinating because uh, he actually knew these individuals. He like lived with them for a period of time in Jamaica. Um, And so, you know, they're in some ways close family relatives, but he realizes that he can make a tremendous fortune if he sues them. And he uses one colonial law to try to get this fortune away from them. And that is that law I mentioned earlier, which is passed right after Tacky's revolt, which limits the amount of inheritance that a mixed race person can receive. And so he basically brings up this law to the English Chancery Court. And he says, well, you know what? My cousins are only entitled to 2000 pounds because there's this law that was passed in 1961. So you know they should be able to each inherit two thousand pounds, but I should get the rest of this fortune. And this sets off a kind of uh, a sixteen-year-long lawsuit that gets. There are cases that are filed in England. There are cases that are filed in Jamaica. There are these constant countersuits that are going on, and effectively, kind of see this extended family uh, network unspool as they both start to sue and countersue one another um, because. Two of the Morse children are lawyers, they, they end up kind of knowing how to use a lot of their advantage to kind of delay the actions. The court, um, and what happens is that you see the these kind of racial ideas emerge, where uh, the white cousin is trying to use uh, racial legislation from the colonies to try to to unseat his his mixed race family members. Uh, eventually, the trial does come to a conclusion, and uh, the the Jamaican Morses are successful, and they're able to keep their fortune. Um, but within all of this. Uh, the, the, the delays around the, the settling of the estate, one of the Jamaican children, uh, he's kind of spent his money unwisely. He's in debt. Um, he needs more and more money and he starts to sue his siblings after this lawsuit was successfully, uh, concluded against their cousin, he's now suing his own siblings. And so that becomes another court case in which you see these mixed race children in Britain who are fighting one another for this large fortune. Um, And then once that's settled, they kind of settle into a kind of English domestic life. Um, And from all accounts, they they really don't have any acknowledgement of their African past ever again. In fact, um, from some of their children... There's a sort of lack of knowledge about whether or not uh, their parents were even born in the colonies or or what kind of connection they have. And so they effectively kind of go into English society as white individuals who have successfully kind of buried their their mixed race past. Um, so it's just a lot of really interesting stories came out about the family dynamics around them and how they they kind of organize their, their households. Um, there's also interesting stories. That, I mean, there's I, another family I talk a lot about are the Taylors. And, and uh, they have a kind of similar story where one of them actually goes off to the East India company um, during his interview to try to get into the company. His family is worried that he looks too darkly complected. And so they they try all different kinds of outfits, which they hope might diminish uh, the the dark character of his skin color. They try to powder his face with white makeup, but they say that makes him look worse. And so they decide not to do that. So there's all sorts of weird dynamics around that. But then there's also these sort of shorter stories. Um, There's a woman named Peggy Care who comes over and she lives with her Scottish family. Um, Her father sent her to Britain when the American Revolution breaks out and he's sort of concerned about, you know, the the French forces that are sailing through the Caribbean. And so she arrives and uh, she's living with her step-grandmother Um, And it's just very clear early on that they just don't get along. And she sort of passed from family member to family member. And each of them just really doesn't want to deal with her. Um, They call her a Cretan, the the little West Indian. You can tell that they have a sort of strong racial animosity against her. Um, And she kind of stays in that that position of treading water and going from one house to the next for about six, ten years. And then finally, she just decides she doesn't want to be in Britain any longer. And she sails back to Jamaica. And there are these sort of heartbreaking letters from her father saying that he wished that uh, his extended family could have taken better care of her and that, you know, he's happy to have her back in Jamaica, but that he really wanted her to succeed in Britain. And so there's a lot of just different kinds of stories where some people really succeed and uh, become incredibly rich and and uh, important uh, and others that just try their best and uh, because of, you know, either the, the time periods they arrive or the family members that they, they come into contact with, they're just not able to succeed in any kind of way. So it's sort of uh, heartbreaking stories. It's interesting stories. Uh, uh, The Morses who I mentioned again, they end up becoming... Uh, uh, they, they testify during Warren Hastings' trial, so they're really connected to some of the most elite people in Britain. Um, so it's just a real r- wide range of stories.
1: I yeah, guess. I was I was actually thinking about that as I was reading and as you we were talking that it seems as almost as if in Jamaica there was more of a kind of set expectation and more of a sort of place for those groups of people to fit into, whereas in England, their fortunes just varied really wildly according to sort of a set of contingencies or even personality or you know, who they happen to be related to or or whatever. It just seemed really, um, there was a very kind of stark c- contrast between the two mm-hmm. places.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that I, I try to argue is that um, even though there are these kind of idiosyncrasies between each of the families, um, y- you kind of get a sense from some of these early stories that uh, even though there are certainly cases where Some British families are not that excited about having a mixed race child in their household. Um, A lot of the stories do seem to be ones in which these mixed race migrants can incorporate pretty well into their families in Britain. Um, uh, there's a story of Jane Harry who comes over in the, the mid 18th century and she, uh, uh, she becomes uh, pushed out of her family network, not because she's mixed race, but because she converts to Quakerism, you know, and it's just like, so those are the things that really drive her family crazy is that she's uh, a dissenting uh, congregant. Um, but then as you get into the late 18th and early 19th centuries, you start to see more and more of a pattern of families growing more nervous about having these relatives in their house and starting to express very explicitly some sense that these are not full, proper members of their household. And they're starting to echo the kind of anti-slavery and and, and sort of racial discourse that's coming out in the popular press. Um, one of the other families I look at are the McPhersons, who are a family in the small village of Blaugowery in Scotland. And uh, uh, the, they come over as sort of in an the 18-teens, and they live with their grandmother. And their grandmother just explicitly is, she's calling them her moonlight shades, and she's just very much talking in very explicit racial language. And she just doesn't believe that the don't have any kind of strong future in front of them. She's more than happy to take care of them, but she just sees them almost as kind of a charity that she has to to deal with. Um, So even though there are these kind of idiosyncrasies between the families, you do start to see this pattern of of sort of easier path to acceptance within a family network in Britain in the, the early to mid 18th century. And then slowly by the 19th century, Families pushing those individuals further and further away from them to the point that they in some cases you get individuals like Robert Wedderburn who becomes a political dissident. And part of the reason why he becomes such a political political agitator is that his family just utterly rejects him when he comes to Britain. So uh so there is, I think, a little bit of a of a consistent narrative as as things change over time.
1: Yeah. Um oh so I was surprised as it sounded as if you were too, to have India come into the story. Uh, I really liked that, that aspect of it. And I was just wondering, I mean, how how do you think about um, bringing those two colonialisms together? Do we need to start doing that more? Is this a a kind of just a little blip in these histories? Or do you think that there's a stronger connection across the, I guess it's Imperial Britain, right?
0: Yeah, I think that there are a lot of great scholars who are working on these issues. And I think um, I just came back from the Fiji conference, which is the forum on European expansion and global interaction. And it was really amazing to see papers in which there were almost no boundaries between where people went, there were connections between California and Hawaii and the Philippines. and, And you realize that in the 18th century, there really is this kind of global world, and um, uh, I don't think I did a proper service to the Indian context at all. It really is just kind of one node in the in the the connections that I'm looking at between uh, Jamaica and Britain. Um, but I do think that there's a way in which what, what amongst the many things I'm trying to do with the book is is to try to show how. Um, you know, mixed race people are are trying to do the exact same things as lots of people in the empire are doing, which is to try to take advantage of the empire for their own growth and their own gain. Uh, for the Morses, you know, I think they really see time spent in India as a pathway to come back um, and claim an, an East Indian fortune, which uh, maybe seems more noble than a West Indian fortune. And so it's a way almost of kind of laundering their colonial past. If they can come back as East Indian n- nabobs, as opposed to West Indian grandees, then they have a greater chance of being accepted in Britain. And so that, that's a way they're utilizing Imperial Adventure to change their status, to kind of raise their profile. Um, that's true of the Taylor family as well, who, uh, you know, well, the James Taylor, who's the oldest, goes into the East India Company Army. He's trying to do it to use a kind of military career to increase his status. Um, and so uh, I think there is a lot more that we can do to try to um, uh, not be constricted just by these simple... You know, American to to British connections. I think there are these global connections which are really important, and I, I kind of touch on it here. But there's certainly a, a lot, a lot, lot more that people could say about it.
1: Yeah, and in some ways, that's that's one of the legacies, this kind of historiographic legacy. Um, but as we as we wrap up, I wonder if um, we could just tease out a little bit of the legacies of the processes that you're talking about. I'm I'm quite persuaded that the focus on family. And um domesticity and in thinking about race is quite central so how 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 do we think about the legacies what's happened since since the end of your book? <laughs> how do we get to where we are today
0: <laughs> well that's a good question and uh, I was a little unsure about how far to trace all that in part uh, you know I, I think um one of the things I wanted to, to show was that the kind of multiculturalism that Britain feels is a brand new part of its society. Is, in fact, has a much longer history. And 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 here I'm really building on lots of, of work that other people have done, especially, you know, as far back as the seventies and the eighties. But, but you know, there are more and more mixed race households in Britain. And I think I, I kind of wanted to show the ways in which the the similar considerations around family belonging that Britons are struggling with now or, or wrestling with, I should say, um, were going on uh, in the 18th century and the 19th century. And it's just part of a continuum. Um, and so I think the legacies in some ways are uh, for Britain, just how the the maybe the whitewashing of family networks uh, kind of. Maybe eliminated this story or tamped down on people's uh, recognition of the influence of non-traditional families uh, in Britain. Um, for Jamaica, I think part of the legacy, because this is the Caribbean Studies podcast, I think part of the legacy is the way in which uh, you know how do we see the transition from slavery to freedom. Uh, and then how do we see maybe some of the ways racial dynamics play out in the 19th and 20th centuries in Jamaica? Um, I kind of end the book talking a little bit about the transition freedom and the ways in which the people who are invested by the Jamaican uh, assembly with, with being perhaps the future stewards of the colony are those mixed race people who have gone off to Britain and have come back. And they're seen by white Jamaicans as perhaps the kind of potential co-leaders uh, of this colony after after the apprenticeship period. Um and I think that in some ways it it feeds into the the kind of concerns in Jamaica around who the political leadership class is in 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 that country even today around the that there's still sort of a colorism that goes on in Jamaica that I think in some ways has roots back to the period. So um, those aren't really issues I, I kind of touch on in the book, but I, hopefully there's some indication of modern day issues yeah. that connect back.
1: So before we go, last question: uh, What are you working on right now? What's your new project? So I have a new
0: project that is looking at what happens to enslaved people when they become very old. Um, One of the things I was really struck by when I was reading a lot of anti-slavery discourse was that um, there were a lot of anti-slavery activists that were talking about how terrible it was that there were these very old people who were still enslaved, and this was sort of evidence of the worst abuses of, of slavery. And then you'd have the flip side of pro-slavery supporters saying, um, no, in fact, I, I have a slave on my plantation, and he's 160 years old, and he served my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and you know this shows just how great the institution is. Um, and so what I want to do is sort of look at the way in which issues of paternalism come out of that interest in old slaves, but also what their lives were actually like. And so I've been going through account, uh, plantation accounts in both Jamaica and Virginia to do a comparison because Virginia has a much larger old enslaved population and Jamaica has a much smaller one. But both of those populations, there's a big concern around old age. Um, so it's, I'm still sort of early in the project, but I'm kind of hoping both to kind of look at this period of time, which hasn't really been discussed in the literature, about the, the end of the life cycle for enslaved people, both in North America and the Caribbean, um, but also how it feeds into kind of discourses around paternalism and uh, support of, of slavery generally.
1: Oh, that sounds wonderful. Um, thanks so much for talking to me. I really, really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it, Alejandro.